I think I mentioned this later in the sermon, but let me say it in case I don't, is this will sound familiar at four o'clock. Um, and this wasn't by, uh, you know, this happened sort of organically. Joyce is going to be preaching at my installation. And Luke 4, and especially this part, is one of the most important passages for how I perceive ministry. And so I asked if um, Joyce would preach on that text along with a text in Amos. So it's kind of funny that I'll be preaching a text that will be at my installation later on. So you'll have to let me know if we, you know, are closer. We'll see. But that's the fun part. You hear the same text, you'll get two sermons from two different perspectives. Uh, it's fun that way. But anyway, we love feel-good stories, right? Really good, homespun, make you say, ah, life is good in the midst of craziness. You know what? Glad I heard this on the news today. You know, there have been stories over the last couple years, and they warm my heart a little bit. One of them in 2014 was about a third grader whose name was Caden, and he noticed as he was going through the lunch line that friends around him didn't have enough money for their school lunches, and they had to put him down. And so he started a campaign amongst his, his friends and amongst their parents that all of his classmates had an opportunity to eat a hot meal. You know, what kind of ingenuity is that? What kind of thoughtfulness? What kind of love that is? It was interesting, the next year there was another story similar, and then in 2018 there was another story like that, and in 2019 there was a boy named Ryan who did the same thing. It's almost every year we hear a feel-good story like this, where one child notice other children in their school don't have enough to afford to eat, and so they pick up from the bootstraps and they help to take care of their buddies. And of course, we hear all the time about these miraculous GoFundMe stories, right? Somebody has cancer, somebody has a terrible accident, and now they can't afford the medical treatments that they need, they can't afford to sustain themselves, and so there's a GoFundMe page set up. And people pour their hearts and their wallets out to support somebody, sometimes who they don't even know. And in my heart, that makes me feel good that people are caring for one another. And so oftentimes, that's the end of the story, and we go on to the next thing, and we feel a little bit better having heard some people taking care of one another. But if we stop at the feel-good story, we almost miss the bigger issue. This week, I, I looked up from the Educational Data Initiative which is an organization, a nonprofit that helps us get good data around all sorts of education from kindergarten up through college. And they did a study about school, public school lunch debt. Do you want to take a guess at how much public school lunch debt there is in this country? $262 million split amongst 1.5 million students. There's over 170,000 students in Florida alone that cannot afford and are indebted for their food at school. And do you want to know the average debt per student? 
here in the state of Florida, $168.56. Now, while I don't give Abe an allowance quite yet, even if I did give him allowance, it was going to take him a long time if he had $168 worth of debt. In the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2018, they found that 26% of the over 1 million fundraisers at the time that were on GoFundMe were related to health costs, health-related costs. These folks collectively, these 26%, 260,000 fundraisers, were seeking $10.3 billion. And at the time that they looked, they had raised about $3.7 billion, or 36% of the total that they were asking for. And these studies don't tell us, they haven't investigated this yet, what happens to these folks who don't raise all the money that they need. Now listen, this isn't to devalue the wonderful, generous things, the beautiful gifts of these children and their hearts reaching out to other children or people who give to these important funds as somebody is dealing with a medical issue. But instead, I think when we just focus on the good news story and we don't think about what's on the other side of it, it shows our desire to want to see the good even if at times it's at the expense of bringing up more difficult issues that the good does bring up. Now again, you'll hear this Luke text as part of the larger story of Luke 4. And the responses after this section, right, the next few verses forward, always seem to cast a shadow on the first half of this story. But today I want to try to approach this part on its own merits as if we don't know what's going to happen to the folks who are going to turn from a bunch of church folks to a mob and going to run, try to run Jesus off a cliff. And it's interesting to see how Luke treats this text in comparison to how Mark treats this story and Luke. Fred Craddock, one of my favorite preachers, says this, Luke places the Nazareth visit because it is first, not chronologically, but programmatically. That is to say that this event announces who Jesus is, of what his ministry consists of, what his church will be and do, and what will be the response to both Jesus and the church. If you ever wanted to get a sense of what Jesus' mission statement was, it's right here for you. He has, in Luke's telling, come straight off of his baptism and had been for 40 days and 40 nights out in the wilderness, being prepared for his ministry. He's entering this synagogue hyped up from all the hard work that he's had to do. And he's doing something rather ordinary to most folks in this time for Jewish men, going to the synagogue and having a reading pulled from the scrolls. And what he's reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, for those of you who are keeping track at home. Now, if this passage ended at verse 20, it would almost sound like what Tasha did earlier today. That you would hear a text, and Tasha did a spectacular job of reading the text. 
Your eyes were fixed on her, or perhaps reading the screen, but you were paying attention and how lovely it was to hear somebody read a text from the scrolls. And of course, this part of Isaiah that Jesus talks about, speaks out loud in the synagogue, really sounds nice, right? Jesus is here to proclaim the good news, release the captives, set the oppressed free, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I mean, that sounds great. That sounds a little bit like Jesus as Caden looking around and seeing lunch debt. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Clear the debt. Sounds great. Or Jesus as the GoFundMe manager. Jesus saw a buddy with cancer and said, we got to take care of this. Set the prisoners free. Nice job, Jesus. Pat him on the back. As we'll hear later, oh, isn't that Joseph's son? Isn't that the carpenter's boy down the street? But everything changes on two words in this passage today. Today and fulfilled. When Jesus recites this passage in Isaiah and goes, sits down, and everybody's transfixed, and he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing, he means at that moment in that synagogue, everything is going to change. There's no heads up, there's no precursor, there's no, hey guys, couple months, things are going to be different. Right then and there, here at this moment, things are going to change, and in that hearing from Jesus himself, everything is fulfilled. Everything is going to be contractually satisfied. Simply by what Jesus said. Today fulfilled means that we have shifted from a feel-good story of blind folks getting their sight and prisoners being released to an acknowledgement of social realities that will need to be attended to and immediately. After all, if there was no one blind, Jesus wouldn't have to heal them and give them their sight. If there were none that were oppressed, he would not have to set them free. So now at this moment, things must change. And Jesus becomes very clear on the direction of the mission of all of the Trinity in this world. It's oriented towards the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed on the margins of society. In proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, Jubilee, and it's in Deuteronomy if you ever want to read about it, Jesus is arguing that all of the systems themselves that cause these folks to be on the margins of society will have to be turned on their head. It also means that it's not geographically centered. Jesus does not say, we are going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor for those within a five-mile radius of the city of Nazareth. There are no limits to what Jesus is going to do. And finally, I think by saying today that this is all fulfilled in your hearing demands a response from all who would hear this text both then and now. 
Jesus doesn't just pose an interesting question to us. He is demanding that something must change. And honestly, this may be difficult for those of us that do not hear ourselves in these texts. If we don't see ourselves as particularly marginalized or we don't see ourselves as poor nor imprisoned, we might be apt to ignore it. Another interesting story in the life of interesting stories. Or we might be tempted to over-spiritualize it. That we'll tell ourselves, well, yeah, I mean, we're, we're imprisoned by something. Well, you know, I'm, I'm poor in time. I mean, poor in getting enough sleep at night. And that's fine up to a certain extent, but what it might lead us to do is place these radical, life-altering statements that Jesus made into a banal safe and locking it away and throwing out the key, securing our emotional safety, of course, but leading to a grayscale, under-interrogated existence. We will always hear about the stories of Cadence, Ryan's, and GoFundMe. Good stories all. Amen and amen. Pass the rolls. I'm hungry. But what if we didn't? What if we didn't lock away this proclamation as some good-feeling story on its own. What if those of us who don't see ourselves in this text actually believed that it was true and something worth putting in the front of our lives as well? If we do, if we do that, does Caden's work lose its feel-goodness if we acknowledge the brokenness of a system that depths families who cannot afford food at a place that their children are compelled to be? Does the gift of a person on a GoFundMe page lose its worth when we recognize that we continue to have a healthcare system that is one of the single largest causes of bankruptcy in this country? I would argue that no. Caden's story is still brilliant. The person who gave to a GoFundMe, especially if they didn't know the person, is still beautiful. To the contrary, I think these stories take on greater color and life because they're Christ's continued work in this world to liberate this world. And perhaps it means it prods us towards greater missions for our own lives. Friends, what if at the end of all of our mission statements here at South Jacksonville Presbyterian Church, we had all this wonderful, fluffy marketing language, and then at the end we said, but really, we're here to proclaim good news to the poor. What if every single dollar in our budget every year had to pass the test through Luke 4? What if every single one of you said to me, Adam, I'm curious if the budget is following what Jesus calls us to do in Luke 4. You ever wanted to see a pastor stumble right now? Be like, well, I think so. 
Let me go look at the spreadsheet. I'll call you back. But wouldn't that be brilliant? What if each benediction that I do from right here as I say, go out into the world in peace to love and serve God by loving, serving neighbor, I also ended it with, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Would it make a difference? Would it change our understanding of who we are? Would it change us, especially if those who were talking about the good news to the poor, the release of the captives, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, if they are not the people who are in these pews or are online every Sunday? Would it cause riots? Or would it show the resurrection? What if we tried and find out? What's the worst that had happened? 